I think of curiosity as the spark. You have that desire to seek, to, to do the next thing, to ask questions, to explore. And if you look at your curiosity quotient aspect of it, it builds your emotional intelligence quotient because you're building that empathy. You're asking questions to find out more about what's important to the other person, and then you're able to see it from their vantage. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the 52 Weeks of Me podcast. I'm Jacqueline Osborne. And I'm Erica Brooks. This podcast is a platform for men and women to share their challenges and lessons they face throughout their journey toward achieving greater life balance through the four pillars of health and, of course, prioritizing the number one asset, you. Amazing. Let's get started. Diane, thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to have you today. To help us get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you for having me here. I'm looking forward to this. I do a lot of different things. So when people ask that, you know, what do you do? And it's kind of a strange thing because I started out in sales. I became interested in continuing education. And so I ended up teaching and I combined all these things. So I have just sold everything from computers to uh, mortgages to software, you, you name it, uh, real estate. I, I, I've probably sold all kinds of things, but I think that that was a really good background that led to so many different areas in which I've worked to give me a lot to talk about when I teach. So I'm the former MBA program chair at the Forbes School of Business. But when I left Forbes full-time, I decided I wanted to go speak and consult and do more of that, which is what I'm doing now. But I also started my nationally syndicated radio show at that time and had no idea that, I don't know, 1,300, 1,400 people later, <laughs> these interviews I did would get me on this path to curiosity. I was interviewing you know, Steve Forbes and billionaires like Ken Fisher and cool people, right? And I'm thinking, what's so similar about these people? And it was really their innate curiosity. Everything was so fascinating to them and they read a lot and they just kept exploring and and I started to look at some of the classes I taught, and a lot of my students were like, yeah, just give me the fish. I don't want to learn how to fish, you know, kind of thing. And I thought, I want to get them more curious. So I started to write a book about curiosity. While I was writing the book, I really recognized that you have to have, figure out how to fix what's stopping it, right? And I had written my doctoral dissertation on emotional intelligence, and I got very interested in personality and assessments and all that at that time. And I thought, well, I'll just look at the assessments for curiosity to see how you, you know, where you stand and how to fix it kind of thing. And I started to recognize that the assessments just told you if you were curious or not, you know, high or low levels, I should say. So if you had low levels, I'm like, well, then what do you do? I wanted to know what's stopping it. And so you could fix it. That's why I created the first and only assessment that determines the factors that inhibit curiosity to go along with my book on curiosity. So I have five books now. There are a lot of them are personality or online education based. But I mostly I train people to give my curiosity code index and I go to companies and I give it just like you would take a disc or a Myers-Briggs or something, you know, that you've seen in the past. It's like that. But instead of labeling people, I, I give them where they stand, kind of more like an emotional intelligence test so that they can move forward. So in the book, The Crack in the Curiosity Code, one of the things that I found the most interesting was it wasn't just around what is curiosity, because I think most people, you can go to Webster's Dictionary and look it up. But what I found most interesting was your connection and linkage between curiosity and performance. And I was wondering if you could help us or elaborate and explain that connection as you see it. 
as you look at curiosity and its link to performance, you got to think how it links to everything in general. I'm going to give you a cake analogy. Before I give you that, I want to give you a little what I saw curiosity as in my mind. And what I saw it as getting out of status quo thinking. It's getting out of the way we've always done things. I don't know if you've seen this research, but there was a woman who went into a doctor's office and they were researching how people will go along with status quo thinking. They didn't tell her, but everybody around her were actors, right? And so every once in a while, a bell would go off and they would all stand up and sit down with no explanation. And she'd look around and she's trying to figure out what's going on, right? And after about the third time when they stand up and sit down, she stands up and sits down with them. Because she doesn't want to be the weird one out, right? You you feel uncomfortable. You have to have this like sense, I'm going along with the crowd. It's called social learning. So she gets up and sits down with them a few times. And then they go, well, let's just take everybody out of the room and see what she does when she's alone. So they do that. And she gets up and sits down even after they're gone. So they thought, well, let's put in real people in the room and see what happens then. So they added people to the room. Yeah, well, she stands up and sits down. And they look at her as she does this. And uh, the guy next to her goes, why did you do that? And she says, well, everybody else was doing it. I thought I was supposed to. So the next time the bell rings, what do you think he does, right? So everybody starts standing up and sitting down. And that's what we do in the working world. And that's how we get into the productivity and the linkage to how it all ties in. Because there's so many things that we're doing that's really not productive, that's not helpful maybe or we're not starting at the beginning so my cake analogy to get to your answer is think of you baking a cake okay your end product cake and this will get back to curiosity i promise and you have ingredients you have eggs and you have flour and you have all these things that you're mixing together and you're putting them in a pan and you're putting in the oven and what do you get well if you didn't turn on the oven you don't get cake you get goo right In the working world, back to curiosity, if your cake is productivity, you look at all the things that people hire me to speak regarding, like, you know, how to improve emotional intelligence and soft skills and leadership and critical thinking and all those ingredients. Everybody's mixing those ingredients, but nobody's turning on the oven. And that oven, that spark is curiosity. So, yes, curiosity is the huge tie in to all these things. My research looked at the cost of emotional intelligence, communication issues, and conflict, and engagement. We all know Gallup, 550 billion, right? How many times you hear that number? Well, there it's tens to hundreds of billions for all the other ones as well, right? And if you can see what's the main spark to causing all these issues, then your cake gets baked. <laughs> and that's what I'm trying to do. There's different ways that we talk about curiosity. There's the way you kind of talk about it when you're a kid, which is it's going to kill the cat. There's the way that you can talk about it when you're in a business setting, which is in the phrasing of a learning organization and challenging the up and all of the, you know, sort of stuff that's out there. How do you encourage people to be curious if they tie that curiosity with a real true risk or threat to their sense of safety? Or even their like financial security? How do you get people to move past that hesitancy into a curious state of thinking? That's a great question because it ties into the corporate culture. And I taught thousands of online courses and that comes up quite a bit. Corporate culture. Can you fix it from the bottom? Can you fix it from the top? And if you don't have a CEO who buys into the need for the culture to be a certain way, it's very challenging to change it from the bottom up, right? So the people who hire me are the the CEOs, the leaders who've already said, you know, this is what we need to do. We need to have a curious 
culture. We need to be like Verizon or Novartis. These companies are super curious and they reward that sense of asking the questions that may ruffle feathers sometimes, right? Right before COVID hit, I was in New York filming with Verizon, little vignettes that they put into their training and their onboarding and their corporate offices and different things. I would talk about importance of curiosity and then they would bring in an employee who did really well to talk about how curiosity made them successful. And they'd take these little five-minute clips and play them for everybody and, and to, to say, hey, this is what we want, right? This is what our corporate culture is. You know, I've had Francesca Gino on the show who wrote the great HBR article, uh, The Case for Curiosity. And she talked about how leaders think that they're encouraging curiosity. But if you ask their employees, it's not the same percentage by any means, right? So all these leaders think that they're doing these things. And what they're not really doing is emulating what they want to see. So you have to be willing to ask the stupid question as a leader and say, hey, I know this isn't going to make me look super bright, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You're going to say, you know, because I reward curiosity. And this is what I see a lot of at Novartis. They have curiosity as a huge part of their culture. And so they encourage 100 hours a year of learning that they pay for. And they have their employees do these little mini TED Talks to teach people. I mean, no better way to learn something than to teach it, right? And then that shows that you're curious and it develops curiosity in other people. So it's about building this culture by emulating and rewarding what you want to see. There's an opportunity cost for not asking those questions. Right now, we've seen it more than ever that people who had the ability to shift and pivot and adaptability and all those words are able to do other things within their organizations because they did say, well, what, if we couldn't do this, what could we do? And I think it's that kind of, what can we ask today? We have certain times set up that we just, everything goes. We just, you know, I mean, Google was known for, you have these pet projects you can work on and, and all these companies who have encouraged that sense of curiosity it comes from the top. And if you're in a company where they're just squelching everything you think and, and make you feel that bad, you're, you probably aren't going to change that company. So it might be time to cut bait. You know, a, a lot of it is, though, the individual has told themselves these things. It doesn't necessarily have to be that company is a problem as the individual. The individual has honestly come by this lack of ability to ask questions and things because of all the experiences and things that they've had. And so that's what I studied is to find out why we aren't curious, what stops us. And my research found that there are four things that stop us. What you're talking about, a lot of it is three out of the four you're touching on with fear being one of them. So that was literally going to be my next question was what about the individual level? Like we're talking about organizations, but there's plenty of folks that don't have, they don't think of themselves as curious. They don't think of themselves of having the opportunity to really ask questions and change the way they're approaching things as, you know, themselves. Yeah. Well, you're touching on what my research was. So for years, I went and I studied this in thousands of individuals to find out what it is that's inhibiting people. And so you had to, in the book, you know, I studied, you know, what happens to us and we start off as super curious and then age five, it peaks and then we tank and we're like, what happened? You know, everybody was super curious. You know, the kids are why, why, why? And one of my favorite pictures I put up in my talks is of these two little girls, like three and four year old little girls at the San Francisco Museum of Art. Instead of looking at the art, they're on the ground looking through the vent to see what's behind there. And if you're at the museum, what are you supposed to do, right? You're supposed to look at the art. They're just super curious. And you look at that picture and you start thinking, huh, what is behind the vent? And then you have this sense of curiosity. 
But it, it's like our creativity, and there's some great TED Talks by George Land and Sir Ken Robinson that talk about what happens about age five, we peak, and then everything starts to tank with creativity and curiosity in general. They're very similar. A lot of it is we get educated out of it. We get our environment. It has an impact. But really, the four things I found out after all the research I did, I used the acronym of FATE, F-A-T-E, to help you remember it. But it's fear, assumptions, which is really the voice in your head that you tell yourself, technology, the uh, over and under utilization of it, and environment. So everybody you've ever come into contact with, teachers, friends, family, everybody. Within each of those categories are subcategories. And, and that's kind of, you know, when they take my assessment, they get to find out which things under which areas are more problematic. And then once you find out, oh, I'm this way because I'm telling myself I'm not going to be interested. I'm telling myself it was hard in the past. I'm not good enough. Or whatever you tell yourself, it'll hold you back. And so even if you're in a corporation that thinks of culture uh, should be curious, your experiences from your last job, you might have worked for a guy who said, don't come to me with problems unless you have solutions. And so you just don't say anything, you know, because you've been programmed that way. I think you got to look at all these areas and ask yourself, is it fear? Is it a substance? Is it technology? Is it environment? And then create kind of a SWOT, a personal SWOT analysis, find out your weaknesses and your threats, you know, that keep you back from uh, solving those things. And then you create smart goals and, and you can reach the next level. So I just have to share a small story. And I may have shared it before. I don't actually think I have. In my many, you're an aggressive female moments, I had a, an anonymous HR investigation a, against me a few years ago. Well, the, the anonymous tip was that I was abusive. But the, the, the findings after the HR investigation revealed four things. I am loud, I have high expectations, maybe it's three, and I ask a lot of questions. You sound like me. <laughs> or every other alpha woman, I don't know. But I remember at that moment turning to the HR woman and saying, are those a bad thing? You say that like it's a bad thing, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Like genuinely just, is that bad? Uh-huh. And I don't remember her response, but the truth is no matter what she said, it triggered it to me, it was bad. Mm-hmm. And that was probably, not probably, that was the start of what led to my burnout because I just had that thought of trying to be someone I was not, not being loud, not being passionate, and not asking questions was very difficult. It's exhausting. Yeah, it would be. Did you hand her Susan Cain's book, Quiet? We're different. Yeah, I love Susan Cain's book because it shows you that the opposite of you might have a hard time with you because they could be the introvert. And we look at the opposite of what we are, which ties into my work in perception, as very kind of threatening or difficult to deal with. Now, to me, I'd be going, please ask questions, you know, lie to me, say something, you know, (laughs) I can't stand it if somebody doesn't talk because I'm an extrovert, right? That's why I did so much work in the area of perception, because it builds your empathy to understand things from somebody else's perspective. If Jacqueline's around like somebody who's introverted, now she knows that that might come across as loud to them or something that they don't want kind of way spoken so she has that ability to empathize. That, okay, this is how I should be in this situation. doesn't mean she has to change who she is. It's just, you know, I worked in a company where we had to take a personality test. It was a color test. And you had to put your results on your cubicle. So if you were red, you were direct. You really want people to get to the point, you know, get annoyed if they spent too much time. You might cut them off and hurt their feelings. If you were green, you were extrovert. You were super chatty. 
and if the red just cut you off, you'd get your feelings hurt, right? And if you were a blue, you were kind of slow pace, you don't like to be rushed, but you're really nice 99% of the time, but if somebody pushes you over the limit, you might blow up. So you don't go and slam something on their desk and say, I need this yesterday because they might explode, right? And then if you're a yellow, you were you need the manuals, you have data, you don't go to them and just get right to the point like with the red, you go, here, here's your spreadsheets, right? So we knew how to interact with everybody. It's almost kind of like, here's your sign kind of thing. But I don't know if I would recommend doing that so much, but but I do that in my head. Like when I meet somebody, I'm thinking, huh, okay, so this is a green, they want to chat. This is a red, I better get to the point. This is a yellow, here's your data. And it really helps a lot. But I think it's important to kind of get an idea when you're talking to somebody to empathize based on their perspective of the way they like information. But I think you can really get a good feel for people when you talk to them and you ask them questions by being curious. Because if you're curious, you're asking questions, you're building that empathy. And so it was really big part in the perception book that I wrote with Dr. Maya Zelahitch because we created a perception power index, which is very similar to the curiosity code index for that, to find the process, which is an epic process, EPIC, which is we you evaluate, you predict, you interpret, then you correlate to come up with your conclusions and your, you know, about everything. And I think that a big part of this was looking at perception as IQ, EQ for emotional quotient, so your measurement of your emotional intelligence, CQ, your curiosity quotient, and CQ, your cultural quotient. And if you look at your curiosity quotient aspect of it, it builds your emotional intelligence quotient because you're building that empathy. You're asking questions to find out more about what's important to the other person, and then you're able to see it from their vantage. You don't have to agree with their vantage point or agree with their end conclusion. But you understand it and you don't think they're nuts or whatever it is you normally would tell yourself. Now that we've established that, I want to get back to how do we, going back to what Erica said, some people say, I'm not curious, that that individual. How do we encourage that internal curiosity of the individual? Is there a way to grow it? Can someone become more curious? Yes. And that's why I created the assessment, because once you realize that you're telling yourself you're not curious. That's the A in fate. It's the assumption. You know, I'm in front of an audience. I'll sometimes hold up a thing of water, you know, and uh, when I'm talking about assumptions, and I'll say, how much do you think this weighs? And they'll say, I don't know, eight ounces. I go, it doesn't matter. I said, what matters is how long I hold it. If I hold it for a minute, it doesn't bother me. An hour, my arm starts to get tired. All day, my arm is paralyzed, basically, right? And it's the same thing with our assumptions. The more, you know, you just think, oh, I... I I'm not curious. It's fleeting and it goes away. You hold on to that, it becomes problematic and you hold on it longer and then you're paralyzed. And so the biggest thing you can do is recognize that you're telling yourself that you're not curious. And that was the assumption part of the whole thing. When they take the assessment, they find out different assumptions that are holding them back. So you have to look at it and recognize, oh, okay, so this is why... I am overly quiet at meetings. The last company told me I was too loud. And so maybe talking to my boss about this, having an open dialogue about this by creating a plan, like what's the best way to overcome this so that I can be more curious. You mentioned very briefly that creativity and curiosity are similar. Listening to you talk, I just hear so much of the same sort of messaging I hear about how to foster creativity. How do you sort of differentiate between curiosity and creativity? 
Is one the output of the other? Curiosity, again, is the spark to creativity. And I've had a lot of creativity experts on the show. And I'll, I'll say, what comes first? You know, become, and I've had motivation experts. And everybody says curiosity comes first. So I think of curiosity as the spark. You have that desire to seek, to, to do the next thing, to ask questions, to explore something. And that'll lead to you being more creative because you opened up all these ideas, those potential by even asking questions or seeking out potential problems with something. So how can you create something if you don't know what's wrong with something or where there's a spot? You also wrote another book, The Power of Perception. And that one, dissimilar to curiosity, which I think everyone knows what it means to be curious, but I'm not so sure everyone knows perception or kind of your definition of it. Can you explain or or what you mean by it? Perception really is about how you see the world, the way things come to you, their meaning behind things. So as you're interacting with people, when they say something, take it the way they meant it. Your culture, your gender, your everything that it makes you you is going to give you your perception of the world. So is perception reality? Yeah, I mean, basically, because this is what I've built as what I see the world. So, so there's that perception is just my vantage point that has been shaped by everything I've ever done. And I've gone through this epic process of evaluating, predicting, interpreting, and correlating to come up with the conclusion I've made, right? We bring all of our baggage with us. To me, perception is not about whether you see the cigar in the wall or the blue dress versus gold dress. I mean, that stuff is perception, but I wrote about perception in the working world. I love how you said that the perception is really, you know, how you see the world. Back in the back in my early days of my career, I used to do a lot of reputation and brand management for people that had kind of stepped in it and they couldn't understand why they were having these challenges around, you know, who they were as a company. And one of the first things I would have to have them come to terms with is the fact that even though that's not their intention, even though their intention was not to, you know, step in it. That was the reality of the situation. Let's go to the far extreme of what that perception is and try to understand it first because the perception became the reality. The thing is, is whether you have the intention or not, there's still the same impact on the other person because of how they perceived it. And that's a hard thing for a lot of people to accept. Then they get just mad sometimes because they didn't have that intention. Understanding the other, you can't control how another person's going to perceive what they're going to perceive. You can only control how you give your message. If somebody takes something you've said incorrectly in your opinion, if you get madder and double down, it just makes it <laughs> so much worse. Two wrongs don't make a right. You know, I've been kind of writing down some adjectives on my notes here while we're talking. And when you think of the historical leader, you think of strength, you think knowledge, you think of sort of this powerful force that comes in the room and makes decisions, gets stuff done. But we're talking about humility, vulnerability, curiosity, and words that didn't really align with that, I want to call it legacy version of what a leader is. What do you think is the future of a leader? Is it someone that's really like, I don't want to be the boss, I'm going to support from under? Or is it going to be a hybrid of the two kind of different visions of that? Just as it's always been, you're going to have everything out there. But I think the successful companies, I think the Jack Welsh days of just get rid of the top, I mean, get rid of the bottom 10, 15%, no matter if they're good or not, just because they're at the bottom, are are kind of not as going to keep going on as they 
were. I don't know if that would still fly in today, but he, he was so successful in his time that it's hard to tell. I really think you're going to see more of the Southwest, of the Costco's. I think a lot of it, it's going to be more about what can I do to make this a better place? You hear the negative cultures and then people just burn out. And I think, I think this generation grew up in a different time where they don't tolerate it. I mean, we, I had a job for 20 years. I mean, how many of you guys had jobs for 20 years? You know, I mean, that doesn't happen anymore. I have a pension. I don't know anybody. So you have to build this culture and it really starts with with a strong sense that these people might leave. It's just a different time. So I, I think we'll see more high culture uh, caring and, because people aren't going to sit around and take it like we did. <laughs> we took a lot. I was lucky I worked for a good company, but I, I did see a lot of people didn't, you know, but they had to stay in their mind. They had the golden handcuffs or they had whatever it was that kept them in where they were. I know I can stay here all day long, but we are just about out of time. So in interest of getting you out on time, I am going to bring up our last and final question, which we ask everybody. If you could recommend one book or one piece of advice, what would it be? Since I love curiosity, one of the books I really loved was Range. It was a really good book because it was about not just having all your eggs in one basket of knowledge. I mean, knowing a little bit about this. And he gave a lot of great examples of tennis players or golfers or, you know, different industries and people who were able to do a bunch of different things that it helped them do other things because of it. So I, I think for advice, it really is look at the things that hold you back from being curious because I, I think that if you recognize that these things are opportunities missed that everything that you're telling yourself could be what what it is that you know keeps you from that next big opportunity that big job that big whatever it is could really make you happier but you've convinced yourself that I, I'm not I can't do it it's too hard it's too much or whatever and then that fear has been holding you back I, I think it really is important to look at those four factors of FATE fear assumptions technology and environment and just write down ways to overcome some of those things that come up in your head. You got me thinking. It's almost instead of the what if as a negative, what could be as an opportunity or a positive. And that mental mind shift, which we're also talking quite a little bit about earlier today, is how do we shift from the, the negativity and that negative self-talk to the positive self-talk. And it's just so important. Yep, I, I totally agree. And I hope everybody feels comfortable to ask me questions, they can find me on social media at Dr. Diane Hamilton. So just D-R for Dr. D-R-D-I-A-N-E-H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N. I'm on all the social media sites. And that's my website too, drdianehamilton.com. I always love to have people ask me questions and uh, interact. And uh, it, it, hey, tell me you found me on this show. i love to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming. It has been a, an absolute joy. We've loved every minute of it. It was awesome. Well, thank both of you. You had great questions. I loved how curious you were. Thank you. That's a, that's a huge compliment. So thanks a lot. You're welcome. Bye. 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 Thank you all for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to us as much as we enjoy participating in the conversation. Now your homework is to be sure to like, subscribe, and let us know what you thought about today's discussion. And of course, find us online, 52weeksofme.net, with the number 5 and the number 2, and at Instagram at 52weeksofme spelled out. 
Again, we love email, so email us at 52weeksofme, spelled out, at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you all soon. Bye! Bye.